Hi, I am Kendall Rawls, Director of Development with the Rawls Group Business Succession Planners, here to welcome you to How to Create Control Over Your Future series. Seasonality, inflation, politics, people, and technology are a few of the many headwinds impacting fuel dealers, propane marketers, wholesalers, and service contractors in the energy space. We are often asked, how can we create predictable revenues in an industry influenced by so many threats? In this episode, Doug Wustem, Managing Director with CTAN Associates, Clayton Lachelet, a succession planner with the Rawls Group, Marty Kirshner, partner with Gray Gray and Gray, and our very own succession planner, Champ Rawls, discusses strategies to take control of the ebbs and flows of your business. Uh, Doug, how can a business owner create predictable revenues in an industry influenced by seasonal, technical, and political changes? The first thing that that an owner needs to do is to create an operational budget so that that they can measure what they're they're doing. Um, it's surprising to me how few businesses have a, a true budget, something in which they can they can measure their current performance against their past performance against what they need to be doing. So because our business is so impacted by weather and outside influences, there's a lack of preparation that, okay, we're in the third week of the month, we're down 20% on degree days, what now? And uh, again, it's just, it's having a budget, managing your performance to that budget. Okay, uh, yeah, uh, going along with that, Doug, it's, um from my past experience in uh, working operations, uh, using uh, policies, procedures, uh, standing operating procedures to make sure that uh, we're being as efficient as we can uh, helps track along with that budget. So you have a budget in place, you wanna stick to it, it'll help you weather through the storm and also using historical data to uh, to plan your operations. Uh, for instance, where I've worked in the past, um, we were extremely influenced by uh, historical weather, weather patterns. So making sure that we're prepped for those downturns and again, not creating any distractions by having any divergence in our operations by making sure our, um, our employees understand what our operating procedures and, and, and sticking to that uh, really keeps us focused and ensuring that we don't get any huge divergences in, in our operations and, and creating distractions where we, are, where we already have a downturn. Right. And uh, I think just staying on the top of budgeting, you know, one of the tools that I always recommend dealers in this industry use is a break-even analysis. So they know exactly how many gallons they need to sell to break even. And it goes along with the budget or at what margin do they need to make in order to break even. So they know that in a month where their gallons are short, maybe they need to ratchet up that margin to the extent that they can. Uh, but most importantly, what I recommend to clients, and a lot of them are doing it now to insulate themselves from the seasonality, is just diversification. Having other products and services that you can do outside of the winter, especially in the summertime, to offset the, the seasonality of the revenues. You know, many companies already do HVAC, so a lot of that work is done in the summer. But you know, depending on the nature of that and what you do, there's other things that we've seen a lot of companies adopt, whether it be you know buying a landscaping company, a lot of companies are now doing these home energy audit, like audit efficiencies, uh, pest control, concrete, just other things that are not tied to the weather that can help insulate you for when the degree days aren't there or the gallons aren't there or the margin isn't there because prices have gone up. 
And I think just to uh, put a button on top of that one is really what, what you were saying there struck me with sit down and do a strategic planning session. It is where can we um, fill in the gaps during a seasonal or a technical issue or a political issue? Figure out is landscaping something that we can do? Is uh, are those um, outside businesses? Can we fit them into our current um, footprint? And uh, really sitting down and having a strategic planning session, which might sound so boring, uh, but can allow you to understand the budget and how you can push it during the ups and downs of any type of. Uh, um, weather, politics, technical uh, disruption. I'd like to, to just add that, that the, the factors that go into creating uh, a, a budget are sometimes missed, as in, you know, how many drivers do I need? Well, how do you determine that? You determine that by, by what your delivery efficiencies are. How many gallons per hour per mile per stop can you deliver? How many service calls can you do in a day? How many installations? And, and that then drives what your manpower needs are, which, which in our businesses, um, next to our product costs, are our are, are greatest single expense. And there, there's, there's not enough appreciation or understanding of what goes into developing um, a, a budget that, that is truly going to maximize your opportunities and your profits. I think Doug is spot on because especially now in times where prices have shot up and inflation is high, budgeting has become more important than ever and not even just budgeting, you know, your P&L, but cash flow forecasting. So you understand what your cash needs are from one week to the next. We have a lot of companies right now that are just sitting out on their line of credit or having conversations with their bank about increasing their line, but who knows when that price spike is going to stop, when it's going to come down. And so, you know, I think it, it, we're in an industry where the average company it's, is a smaller company, you know, probably less than 20 employees, not a sophisticated finance function. So you really need to reach out to the experts and the people that understand, you know, forecasting and budgeting to make sure that you have that plan in place so that you have something to benchmark against as you go throughout the year, because you don't want to wake up one day and just have no cash in the bank and nothing to go buy a new product with, because then you have nothing to sell. Champ, what do business owners need to do to secure their financial and family future, whether that be to sell out completely, grow, or transition to the next generation of leaders? Um, I think business owners when having this question posed to them, whether it be to sell, grow, or transition, need to first look at the foundation of their business. Um, we were just speaking about, you know, budget, strategic planning, all that kind of stuff, and and understanding what the core of the business. I just came from a, a oil and gas, you know, business last week that was talking about growing. And the first thing I told them is, what is the point of growth if you don't know what you're good or bad at now? What's your current market penetration? What are these things, these factors, these metrics that you can look at to be able to understand um, what your potential is in the future? And that leads you to the conversation of, should you sell? Should you grow? Should you transition? 
because inevitably it's going to make the multiple on your business so much higher when you understand what you're good at and what you're bad at. So, um, you know, my first thought with that is what's the foundation? How do you operate? Um, and then from there, it is the idea of um, testing the waters. What, what, what is the value of the business? Uh, what can we do better to get into different lines of business? And if you have the talent um, in the next generation, how do you prepare them to uh, take over the best business you can possibly create for them? Really, at the end of the day, I'm with Champ in this one because you do need to have a plan. I even wrote when I was writing notes down for these questions, I said having that strategic plan to go out at least two to five years, you know, when considering whether to transition to the next generation or to do an internal sale versus an external sale, you need to really understand the family dynamics. You know, if, if there's a parent that's transitioning out of the business, they need to know that, first of all, they have enough in retirement and post work to, to live off of. And if they don't, and they continue to need an annuity out of the company, then the question becomes, well, can the company sustain while non-working parent is, is leaving the company? And so um, that's where the plan comes into place. You know, it, it's something where you need to have, you know, I would say at least a 10 year runway before you start to make those decisions to have those conversations that far in advance. I'm also a big believer that, you know, when bringing next generations into the business, it's always been my experience that had, Having them have experience at other companies where you know their last name isn't on the sign has usually been a good recipe for them to move up within the family business and understand what it's like to not be, you know, mommy or daddy's kid and to also have to work their way up a little bit before they're just kind of given that birthright. Yes, agreed. Uh, so making sure that you have that potential successor identified and developing their talent um, and having a plan to. Um, a curriculum for them to make sure that they're going through the, the right uh, portions and, and then segments of the business to understand it and understand it in a, uh, as a whole. So with that, you know, that plan has to uh, ensure that they're being developed and also working with your key managers. They're working closely with key managers within the, uh, within the business to um, build that rapport. Uh, if they if they don't have that rapport with their key managers and in the process of you know coming over uh, into the succession realm, they may or may not be prepared. So uh, I think absolutely um, you know identifying it and making sure you have a plan for developing their their skill set uh, is is key to making that transition. I think to to take a little bit of a step back in order to make the decision of of whether you want or need to sell or or grow or transition you need to engage a group of professionals or a professional to to help you make that decision i may very much want to grow my business but but unless unless i have the capacity either to to fund that um or to have the team in place to to make that happen successfully, yeah, uh, it, it's it's going to fail. And one of the biggest things that that I encounter is a lack of willingness for for business owners to step outside of their business and get the professional advice uh, that that really is required for them to successfully do any one of those three things. Yeah, that 
the misconceptions about planning goes back to the fact that that generally these owners are very strong entrepreneurial people who who have made all of the the decisions um and generally they've they've done them them very well but but again there's uh that doesn't always lead to success. And I go back to my statement about, about uh, professionals and bringing professionals in to, to help them, help us make the right decisions. Um, uh, it's, if, if I wanna sell my business, uh, I shouldn't think that I can sell my business, make the decision to sell today and put it on the market tomorrow. You know, you really need to plan whatever it is you're going to do um, and follow that paint that plan in order to ultimately be successful. I totally agree. Uh, one of the things is to make sure to have a plan, uh, making sure you're, you're doing planning, but also I found that in the operational environment, uh, people that are highly involved in their business go way down into the weeds on uh, the day-to-day -day operations and get stuck in a rabbit hole at times in the planning, doing the what ifs about things that aren't strategic planning. So they, they're trying to build a strategic plan, but they're going way too far in the weeds. So it, and it, it can be overwhelming if you do the what if this and what if that about every uh, little aspect of the operation. So uh, I've always been... Um, a proponent of thinking from the, the 30,000 foot picture and then coming down as opposed to starting from the bottom. Uh, there's a lot of uh, clients that start from the bottom and work their way out with the plan and it, it just it can be extremely overwhelming. Yeah, and I, and I honestly, you know, I'm coming at it from a different angle where, you know, when you use the word planning, to me, it's, it's a buzzword. It's such a generic term. It's mm -hmm. something that's so thrown around and and it's one of those things that, you know, you say something, like, yeah, you got a plan. It's like, yeah, of course I got a plan. Everyone plans. And so I think one of the biggest misconceptions is for business owners is with planning. A lot of times it's, it's all up in their head and they've never actually taken the time to write it down and actually look at the pitfalls, the pros, the cons, you know, the, the classic SWOT analysis. Um, you know, just as an example, when you're talking about succession planning, another type of succession planning we haven't really talked about is when, you know, one partner buys out the other partner because, that happens a lot. And I've been in too many of those situations nowadays where there wasn't a buy-sell agreement in place. There wasn't any other um, safeguard to allow for an amicable pre-agreed upon transition. And you spend the next eight to 10 months negotiating on one half of, on behalf of the other. And it can create a real contentious situation. Whereas had the planning been done beforehand to have, again, a buy-sell or some kind of succession business succession agreement in place, a lot of that could have been avoided. And again, I hate to say it, but I see it too often when, especially dealing with multi-partner entities, because I think we spent a lot of time talking about sole owners passing to the next generation, but there are a lot of businesses in this space where multiple people have ownership and that can create a lot of both family dynamic issues, but if they're not family, just business and friend dynamic issues. Yeah, and I, I think the general way that I always like to say this and to tag onto that is, you know, the biggest misconception as you had said, because it's in their head, is that they actually think that they're doing it, which is planning at all. Oh, I've got that agreement with my partner. We'll figure it out. 
And then you get into a, you know, 500 grand uh, litigation suit with the attorneys are the only ones winning because you can't come to a value on it or, or those type of things. And so I, I think the um, planning to me, and I think somebody had said it earlier is yes, it's such a buzzword. It's so vague, but um Getting the team around you that can help you is essential in this thing, because um, if if, you know, I can't think of what that uh, phrase is, but everybody, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. Everyone would have a plan. We would have no jobs. Succession planning would not be a word. Um, and I think having your your advisors, your team, the people around you, because it's not easy. You got to be honest. Uh, somebody has got to tell you the truth. Uh, um, and then, as you said, you got to take it from your head, put it on paper and then live with it for um, the next five to 10 years. That's actually doing planning. Um, it's not the vagueness of, oh, I got that figured out. That that generally never works from my experience. And I would assume from all of yours as well. I'd like to um add one thing back in about about planning, which is working with your banker. And I, I say this because of what's happened in the last whatever 12 months, where where the the cost of product has gone up, you know, 100%, 200%. And, you know, if if you don't have a plan with your lender of how you're going to be able to to meet your your financial needs, um, you know, having all the, the rest of the plan in place isn't going to matter. Well, we really haven't even, I mean, I think it was brought up, you know, the personal financial planning side of this thing. It, it's not really the business aspect that we're talking about here, but um, from a succession planning or a, a partner buyout or a transfer, none of those are ever successful if you don't figure that part out. And that goes back, I think, to what you're saying, credit continuity, uh, you know, guarantees, all these type of things that tie into the banking side and the personal financial that if they're not figured out, some of the smallest things can blow up deals. And um, that's why, again, as you know, I think we've all been saying, engage your professionals, hire a team, you know, puts people around you who uh, are, are their job is the details. And then you can be confident that you're, you're putting something together. Uh, Marty, how can business owners retain, attract and motivate employees during the great recession? Well, that's obviously a very loaded question. There's, there's a lot that can be done. I, you know, I've spent a lot of time doing some research on the great resignation, just like this industry, my own industry that I'm in is very much a victim to the great resignation where there's just so much out there, there's a new world of where you can work remotely and have this flexibility and, you know, money's getting thrown all over the place. But at the end of the day, there's, there's, you know, there's a ton of things, but I'll focus on really three things that I think are at the top of my list for where you can do. And one obviously is for employees that are coming into your business. Cause again, it's been hard to find technicians and drivers is having a clear path for them for their growth within the organization. I think in the old days, and Doug, you can correct me if I'm wrong, you know, a driver or tech would come in and that's kind of all they would expect to be for their entire career. And now you got people coming out that still want to drive trucks or be a technician, but they want to do more. And 
I've always said, you know, they come in with the mindset that their last name isn't on the door. So there's nowhere for them to grow. And if you can create this culture where it allows them to know that they can move up, I think you can get a lot more out of them. And continuous with that is a big believer in golden handcuffs where you can um, put in these incentive comp plans that basically give them milestones like, hey, if you stay for X amount of years, you'll get X amount of reward. And it's got to be something worth their while. It's got to be a number that jumps out to them. Um, you know, is it buying loyalty? Yes. But at the end of the day, if they're doing good work, you're only going to keep them if they're good. And so I think looking at that and then lastly is, uh, you know, creating a work life balance for them that maybe is a little different than what it was in the past. The biggest example I use is a lot of these folks that are going out and doing deliveries or making service calls have families. And we've always had this mindset, like you wake up at 6 a.m., you go do your deliveries, you're back at 2 p.m. or whatever time, and then you punch in your tickets and you call it a day. But what if, you know, you let them start their day at nine, they did the exact same stuff that they were going to do. They still get it done on that day, but now maybe they can see their kids off to lunch or help make dinner or other things that they couldn't do before, which creates a lot of intrinsic value that isn't necessarily tied to giving a big raise. So those are just some of the things that come to my mind. I, I um, would agree. And I think the, uh, I think the practical, um, some of the things that we've impl implemented on those lines are, um, you know, it, it's all about branding, I think. And I think it's kind of what you said, money right now is not the issue. It's motivation. And it's how do you build a company that people want to work at um, in contrast to your competitor? So um, how do you put curriculums? I, I think, as you said there, what's the career path? But actually promoting that we develop a curriculum for the driver to tech, to manager, to, to whatever. So the money part takes care of itself. The prestige part takes care of itself. Um, it's the promoting the benefits and, and it's the same thing that we keep on throwing the, the words around and planning, but, you know, I, I strongly believe just in why a customer is going to buy from you or, uh, um, get service from you rather than a competitor. You also have to look at why is an employee going to choose to work for you rather than a competitor? And it's really as simple as that, because if it's a dollar, okay, pay one more dollar. But if it is the benefits that you time, um, you know, the, the career um, launch pad, um, anything, it's how do you brand yourself to be the best um, landing spot for employees today, because they have so many choices. I think on to retain employees in this market we, we really need to to rethink uh, the relationship between owners and employees and I think you know respecting the employees and and doing it in such a way where where you are more conversational maybe than than you've been in in the past and engage them in in you know what the business is doing and why you're making this choice versus a, another choice and truly listen to to what your employees have to to say you know going back to also what what marty said i think that that our employees need to understand what their paths of opportunity are in in your business and you know each employee has uh, has their their own um, 
wish for who they want to be and what they want to do. So, you know, you need to listen to them and create pathways that keep them, you know, in a position where, where they want to, to uh, stay part of the team. And on motivation, one of the things, surprisingly, there's our employees, I think, deserve to understand what our business is doing financially and why. And what I've seen is, is a lack of willingness of, of owners of small businesses that we're talking about to share some critical information with their employees and why you're making this decision and not making that decision. And I think we need to be more open and forthright with our employees so they truly understand the challenges of today's business world. That's totally agreed. But uh, one of the other things that uh, we, we touched upon a bit, but also creating pipelines for the actual attracting of uh, new employees. So creating uh, pathways for uh, entering the business is, I think, key to developing uh, a, a really resolute workforce where, for instance, you have uh, partnerships with trade schools, for instance, and bringing in apprenticeship programs, uh, those build extremely loyal employees. Uh, we use that in the past industry to bring in employees um, on our technician side, uh, partnering with uh, the trade schools and, and universities to bring in technicians. And through these apprenticeship programs, they saw that you invested in their development and they became extremely loyal employees. And uh, many of these uh, employees, you know, are have been with the company 20, 30 years because they went through the program from the beginning to end. So, uh, or they, their intention is to stay to the end anyway. But um, I think developing those pipelines for attracting new employees also adds, uh, you know, value to your uh, your HR process. I do like. Uh, I wanted to go back to what Marty had said earlier. The because we're not only talking about. Um, it's motivate and retain. And I think the golden handcuffs that you mentioned are so important when you do lock down these talented people, because you can um, motivate them by tailoring these deferred any way you want. And so whether it be by performance, longevity, um, they're great motivational tools to not only uh, drive what you're looking for in your business, but to also be as creative as possible in retaining talent um, again so a competitor doesn't come poach. So, um, you know, once we get them, it's how do you keep them? Champ, what do business owners in the energy space need to do to compete and thrive in the future? You know, the buzzword for the day, I think, has been um, planning. Um, but it all it is the work that's involved in it. And I think that the, you know, business owners in this space, I think the obvious things that could be said right now is understand your politics, understand uh, the environment. Um, you know, I was just with a, a group again last week who uh, was talking about um, their business plan and their their mission, their mission statement and everything. And they noticed it didn't um, include anything on um, climate and the environment. And they're a company who is in oil and gas. 
but they're also an energy. And it was so good for them to understand we're selling to customers. We got to be selling that we are, you know, it is oil and gas that we're selling. But if we don't get that in the changing political tides here or the uh, social, that if we're not, you know, the, the environmentally safe things for energy that we can do, we're missing the boat because somebody else is doing it. So to me, that was, uh, and we had gone through a full um, strategic planning session and, you know, it, it came out of that. The other thing that I would say is you have got to be flexible and you got to be creative because we've touched on it before. If you're going to just stick to one product line or service, that is going to die off. You have got to be able to diversify, in my opinion, and um, understand multiple um, lines of revenue in the space you're in to survive. Yeah, and I'm going to take it back even a step further, just because we're talking about the energy space. I think, you know, I'm just thinking from a, a geopolitical standpoint, first of all, the industry needs to band together to fight the political battle. I think there's too much reliance on a small subset of businesses and, and organizations that are fighting this battle. And there's a lot of people on the sidelines that are just waiting for everyone else to do the dirty work for them. And that's not a good approach if you want to thrive in the future. We all know what's going on. We read the news. We see everything. Um, so that's the biggest thing for me in order to compete and thrive in the future. There needs to be a future, first of all, to compete in and thrive in. And once you've gotten past that, it, it goes back to some of the things we've talked about and that I've said, you know, diversifying products and really embracing change, embracing the work culture. Doug kind of said it. I mean, I hate to say it right now, but we're living in kind of a world right now where the employees have a lot more power than ownership does. And you need to adapt to that because you can either fight it and lose people and lose business, or you can embrace it and figure out ways to be innovative and make that just part of the future. If, if that's the trend that we're going in, I think too often, and I found this, you know, my own organization, you know, the people above me, they had a different path to get to where they were than I did. And theirs might've been harder than mine was or different than mine. Maybe mine was more transparent. And so it was hard for them to embrace. And now I'm dealing with that with the next level of employees that have come in who want to know way more than I ever got to know. And I'm trying to say, well, all right, this is just how it is. And I need to embrace it if we want to continue to succeed. So it's accepting things for what they are and not trying to fight it. This kind of touches on on things that both Champ and Marty have said, but I, I, th I think there, there needs to be a deeper understanding of, of your market, the products that, that you're providing, and the customer attitude towards those, those products and services. I, I've been a big believer in focus groups, and, and uh, I, I think you know, they play an important part in, in us truly understanding not just who we are, but who we need to be um, to be successful in, in the future. And then touching on what, what particularly Champ said, every owner needs to become involved in the political process. It, from, from where I've been sitting, they've always depended on, on their association or someone else to do it. Um, we're in a political environment today in, in certain areas that, that it doesn't matter how great a business plan you have, if, if in the political environment they, they make a choice that, that you will no longer be able to, to sell and install new heating equipment you know, that's fueled by natural gas, propane, or heating oil, your plan doesn't matter. So 
every owner needs to reach out to their local representative, senator, and, and their federal uh, elected officials as well. To, you know, deliver a message to them of, of who you are, what you do, and why you're critical to the future. Uh, you just can't sit back now and hope that someone else does it for you. Uh, yeah, totally agree, Doug. And going back to both what you said and uh, both Marty and Champ as well, um, communicating to your employees what, as well that they're, they're you know, capable of helping in this uh, political process. Uh, we used to have, and uh, a previous employer used to have regular briefings on the state of the um, political environment because we're working with the uh, upstream side of the industry and getting them to understand, hey, if the, these policies and this administration does these things, it will impact you. So kind of getting a grassroots effort from the employee side as well to contact their congressman and, and communicate those issues and understand that if everyone is you know, mar marching lockstep together to communicate those issues to their uh, representatives, it, it can help you know, direct policy as well. And understanding the, the the impact of administrative decisions is is huge to driving change. So, I would add. I think that the I think it's uh, what you had said earlier, Doug. That it's the you know it's the mind shift of no longer the entrepreneurial driver of the business, but it is now working on the business to take it to the next generation. Whether that's through the sale, but to your point. You know, if you don't advocate for yourself, there may not even be an industry for you to work in. And um, it takes effort. It's stepping out of comfort zone, but it's essential in, especially in the space, to uh, ensure that you know there, there's a private business owner that has an opportunity to work in the energy space in ten years. If I if I am thinking about potentially selling my business, what should I be focusing on? You need to be focusing on on what you need to do to maximize the value of of your business. And again, I, I go back to my my earlier statement is you need to engage a professional or professionals so that you can position your business in the best possible way, both visually and financially. Uh, for it to attract um, the the greatest value for a prospective buyer, you can't you can't choose to sell your business today and think you're going to sell it tomorrow. You need to to talk to your accountant. You need to talk to an outside professional, and and you need to maximize um, the entirety of the business value before that business is offered for sale. And I would just add, I think the, um, I, I, I couldn't agree more and to advocate for you, I, I go once you've maximized the value of that business, inherently as business owners, everything you do is so private because you don't want people out there to get your trade secrets. How do we do it? Your employees lists. And so you don't know the, um, the buyers who are out there and, and, um, 
getting aligned with a professional, with your team who understands, who has other people that are in this space opens your entire world up to the opportunities of getting that best value and that best buyer for your company. So I, I just was, you know, double down on that as well. Do not do this alone. It, it, my professional opinion is do not do this. <laughs> support that professional opinion and I agree with everything they said. And I just think it's important that before you decide to sell your business, that you've done some work to dress the business, as we say, for sale. I think too often we walk into situations where companies are going to sell and they haven't run the company as profitably as they could for at least a short period of time. You know, I think we all know that closely held businesses, a lot of things run through there, whether they should or not, that doesn't matter for today, but, you know, being prepared to pull that to the side or look at non-recurring things. And again, having good, clean, accurate financial reporting, I think is huge to make a transaction as easy as possible. And I'm sure Doug is probably thinking, I know exactly what he's talking about. And I deal with the same thing with a lot of, smaller shops, single shingle CPA firms, as we say that, you know, just put stuff together to maximize taxes, which everyone's so focused on saving money on taxes that they forget about the value of their business and when they need to sell it, how they can flip the script. So I just wanted to add that little two cents in. Marty, NA, you had mentioned the 50-50 partnerships or just not even 50-50, but a partnership. What sort of things should that business owner set up partnerships be thinking about oftentimes they don't know how, what the future, how to transition the business um, or what the future may be in terms of their options. One partner may want to stay in the business longer. One partner may want to sell it to maximize. So in that environment, what are some things that you can share to um, partnership dynamics um, as they look to be successful into the future? Yeah. And, and I think the example you gave there is more often than not the situation that happens, you'll have two 50-50 partners where one wants to get out and one wants to keep going, or one wants to sell and one doesn't want to sell. And obviously they have to work through that. So really, and I alluded to earlier, the, the buy-sell agreement where the parameters are set up long before this situation ever comes to fruition that basically says, in any event, forget, you know, one person just wanted to leave, but in death, disability, again, retirement, you know, what, what, What's the parameters for the process? You know, what are we going to agree on to a value? What are we going to agree on the payment stream for that value if we run into that situation? I think, again, not having that and then getting surprised when one partner walks in and says, I'm ready to go. And the other one says, well, I want to keep going. That, that mitigates that conversation a little bit. You know, most companies should have also what's called a business continuity agreement, which again says what happens to the business in the event that something happens to both owners or one of the owners and how the business will continue to to thrive. I think they also call them the disaster recovery plans. I know that they use that on the IT side of things, but also for business disasters, which that incurs. So those are the two things you really should start with. And then the conversations get a lot easier once you hit that roadblock or fork in the road where you have to make those decisions. And I have nothing to add there because that was 100% accurate. The only thing I would say is do not go to LegalZoom.com and get a buy-sell agreement. Get a professional who knows what they're doing because it is a great step to put it in place. Um, but you don't want a document in place that doesn't have everything that you're looking for. So spend the money, do the work. Um, and I am sure all of you guys have been a part of 
bad documentation um, screwing up what was a good partnership. So I'll just add that and take it to the, if you're going to get it, do it the right way. And then I'd like to add, you know, something that, that I, I think is just, you know, naturally happens, but it doesn't, which is to have adequate insurance in place in case one of the, the owners passes suddenly that the, the surviving owner has the financial ability to satisfy the buy-sell agreement and maintain the operation of, of the business. You know, the, uh, the, sometimes those policies are one and done, they're, they're, they're purchased and then forgotten about, but the value of the business uh, because they've been successful has increased and the value of the policy is insufficient to cover the buy-sell needs. The only, sorry, one more piece to add to this because I think um, everything we're saying, I can give you a real life example where this happened within the past year. I was approached by a, a M&A broker who was representing a heating oil company. It was, it was not CT and it was not Doug, I'll qualify that. And what happened was the owner passed away and had no plan in place, had no will in place, had no succession plan in place, and the business ended up in receivership. And so when the company went to market, this was a very reputable, nice company up in a nice area with good, healthy margins. But when, when the owner passed away and there was no plan, there was no one steering the ship, and this uh, broker had to, again, take this company in receivership and market it. And one of my clients ended up acquiring that company and just, you know, got it for well below the value of the business, which is great for my client, but more reinforces the fact that no plan means a loss of significant value, but you get what you pay for. And I think that's kind of what Champ said, and I think Doug and Clayton would agree. You know, yep. Don't try to cut corners. You're only going to cheat yourself on the back end. Well, and I would also add there that the, you know, uh, our tagline, what we, you know, succession planning builds value. You can say strategic planning builds value. Your advisors bring value. And yeah, it's going to cost money on the front end. But I think to what Doug has said earlier, you know, if you're planning on growing the business, do the work, spend the money at the beginning to get it to wherever it needs to be. If it's the advisors, your documentation, exactly what you said, you know, pay for value. It will pay off. My last tagline of the day. Working on your business and leaning on expert advisory guidance allows you to create more control over the future you envision. By proactively addressing possible, probable, and potential issues, you create many options at your fingertips. Creating control over your future is a part of the Rawls Group's Advancing Your Business, People, and Legacy conversation series.